Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. It's interesting sitting here at my desk and seeing your faces on screen feels actually feels more intimate in a good way than standing behind the lectern at the temple, though I do miss being at the temple. The topic of my talk this morning is troubled times, troubled minds. To call the last five months troubled times is probably an understatement. I know that in the eight plus decades of my life, I've never experienced anything quite like this. I'm sure you haven't either. The convergence of so many troubling things, first and foremost, obviously the pandemic, which has now been with us for as much as eight months, keeping us sequestered in our homes. And in the midst of all this, we witnessed the brutal killing of George Floyd and all that that unleashed and the recognition of how much we still have racism in this society. It's almost been too much to process. And I think it's fair to say that for most, if not all of us, it has left us with troubled minds. I think that most of us have done a marvelous job of coping with the situation without falling apart. Crises have a way of bringing out the best as well as the worst in people. And I think that for most of us here in New York, it's brought out the best and it's taught us a lot about coping and surviving. But perhaps the most difficult part for many of us has been the frustration and distress of not knowing what lies ahead. What will it be like in a month, in six months, in a year? We just don't know. We're used to being able to plan for the future and right now we can't. And that is troubling. I don't think most of us have ever experienced that before. I know I haven't. It brings about all kinds of feelings, sadness, anger, frustration. At moments, there may be a sense of hopelessness or even despair. But mixed in with these feelings also may be a sense of gratitude for those of us who have not suffered from the virus itself and who have a safe roof over our heads and food in our cupboards and virtual access to friends and family. And if the pandemic has done us a favor, it has been, I think, to teach us not to take those things for granted. But when all is said and done, I think it is safe to say that our minds are often troubled these days. And we may find ourselves feeling things that we think as good Buddhists, we shouldn't be feeling. And that's really what I want to address this morning. Somehow the idea of having a troubled mind may seem antithetical to what we think we should strive for as Buddhists. To be sure, our spiritual practice can be wonderfully helpful in calming our minds when we feel troubled. But when you're living through the kind of situation we're living through today, I would suggest that for most of us, our spiritual practice can't eliminate our troubled feelings so much as it can help us to live with those feelings without succumbing to them. So what does Buddhism teach us about feelings? I know that before I studied Buddhism, I had a misconception that I think many Westerners have, that the goal of Buddhist practice is to eliminate feelings, to be free of emotion. But what I've learned at the Wan Buddhist Temple in the last 20 plus years is that that simply is not true. In fact, we are encouraged to have and accept and, and embrace our feelings. And what I've learned as a psychotherapist and from my own inner journey 
is that to not have feelings and not allow ourselves to have our feelings would be neither desirable nor possible. Feelings and emotions are as much an integral part of who we are as are our minds, our thoughts, our bodies, our essence as sentient beings. There's a principle in psychology that I found very helpful and that I believe is absolutely true. And that's this, we are not responsible for what we feel, but we are responsible for what we do with what we feel. Think about that for a moment. Do you ever consciously decide I'm going to feel anxious now, or I'm going to feel delighted or angry or disgusted? No. Our feelings come upon us unbidden. They are not premeditated. We can't control that. What we can have some control over and where responsibility comes into being is deciding at any given moment how we will respond to what we're feeling at that moment, how that feeling will be expressed or lived out in our lives. I'll say more about that in a moment. But first, I want us to look at how we think about our feelings, especially in troubled times like we're going through now. I think it's easy to get very judgmental about our feelings, especially those that seem unhappy or unpleasant. We may find ourselves thinking it's good to feel gratitude, love, compassion. Those are positive feelings. But it's bad to feel anger, sadness, jealousy, all those unpleasant feelings. If we're really successful in our spiritual practice, we won't have those kinds of feelings, right? I think we can get caught up in those kinds of judgments about our feelings. But the fact is that we can't pick and choose what kinds of feelings we will experience, especially in crises or troubled times. We are all prone to the full range of human emotion, and that is the way our psyches are conditioned which is not to say that we can't learn to calm and control our feelings through self-awareness, through spiritual practice, through mindful living. But I think we do ourselves a real disservice when we see all unpleasant feelings as being wrong or a sign of weakness. Nowhere is this more apparent than how we look at our anger. Is anger a bad feeling? Is it a sign of weakness, something to be avoided or transformed at all costs? I have recently found the Dalai Lama very helpful in dealing with this question. The Dalai Lama explains that all emotions have an evolutionary purpose and a biological dimension. In other words, they are natural responses to circumstances that appear in our lives. For example, he says, quote, anger helps us repel forces that are detrimental to our survival and well-being. He suggests that it's natural for feelings, including anger, to arise and that emotions aren't harmful in and of themselves. All emotions have both destructive and non-destructive sides. He states, quote, generally we can define destructive emotions as those states that undermine our well-being by creating inner turmoil, thereby undermining self-control and depriving us of mental freedom. Within this, it is also possible to distinguish between two subcategories. Those emotional states that are destructive in themselves, such as greed, hatred, or malice, and those states such as attachment, anger, or fear, which only become destructive when their intensity is disproportionate to the situation in which they arise. Let me repeat that. I think that's an interesting statement. 
states such as attachment, anger, or fear only become destructive when their intensity is disproportionate to the situation in which they arise. He further goes on to say that anger can be constructive at times. Quote, anger is not always destructive. For example, in some situations, strong compassion may give rise to an equally strong sense of outrage, anger about an injustice. Again, feeling angry can in the short term make our minds more focused and give us an extra burst of energy and determination. In these ways, anger can, in certain situations, make us more effective in getting things done and in obtaining what we rightly seek. He distinguishes between hateful anger and compassionate anger. He states, suffering should make us angry. This type of anger moves us toward a wrathful compassion to take action to end suffering. He adds, here the issue is how to deal with anger because there are two types of anger. There's a destructive type of anger built by resentment and hatred. But there is another type of anger that we will call compassion anger that is useful. Anger that is motivated by compassion or a desire to correct social injustice and does not seek to harm the other person is a good anger that is worth having. He concludes, to be angry is a very subjective thing. To be angry in a positive way means we open our eyes to the suffering in the world, to social injustice. It's not enough to remain quietly meditating in the monastery. We must confront the violence in the outside world. To be angry on behalf of those who are treated unjustly means that we have compassionate anger. This type of anger leads to right action and leads to social change. I find those very wise words from a wise man. Picking up on something we discussed a bit after a Dharma talk a few weeks ago, in the times we're living through right now, I think it is appropriate for us to feel angry at those who put others at risk by not wearing masks in public. It's appropriate to feel anger at the governors of states like Florida, Arizona, and Georgia who refuse to require the wearing of masks in service of their own political agendas at the expense of human life and suffering. Furthermore, I think the Dalai Lama would second this, it is not only appropriate, but perhaps necessary and essential to feel anger and outrage at those who promote injustice toward those of another race, religion, or sexual orientation. The tricky part here is that anger can devolve into hatred and demonizing those toward whom we feel angry. That's not helpful, and it can lead to violence and destruction. But if anger is motivated by compassion toward those who suffer from injustice, and by a determination to create a more just society, then as the Dalai Lama says, it can serve a good purpose, and we should not be ashamed of feeling that anger. In fact, we should use it positively by speaking out against injustice and inequality. Maybe in, in a few months, taking action to help get the vote out in November, letting our leaders know that we ex what we expect of them. And if we can do those things with our anger, it will serve us well. Of course, following the Dalai Lama's lead, we're right to ask the question, how can we keep compassionate anger from devolving into hatred 
and violence, or what he calls destructive anger. I think there are a few guidelines that can help us here. First, I would emphasize the importance of self-awareness. And I think we all know this. When we get angry, it's helpful to know what triggers that anger and what feeds it. C.G. Jung talked about what he called complexes. In fact, he coined the term complex. He suggested that many of us may have a bit of an anger complex. And what he meant by this is that if we've been mistreated or abused earlier in our life, often in situations where as children, we couldn't defend ourselves against abuse of adults, we had to swallow the hurt and anger that we felt toward the abusers. And that anger remains within the body like a lump within our chest. And every time in our lives that we again are mistreated, another layer is added to that lump. Then when we subsequently experience abuse aimed either at us or someone else that reminds us of that earlier abuse, it can activate the full power of that stored complex of anger, causing us to lash out with more force and emotion than the situation merits. Indeed, Jung suggested that many violent acts come from this kind of complex activation. So the more that we can be aware of the complexes within us, they the stored anger and hurts that come from the past, the more prepared we can be to moderate our responses accordingly. That kind of self-awareness can be gained through psychotherapy, but it also can be gained through our spiritual practice. I think that when we allow ourselves to be fully vulnerable, fully open to all of our feelings when we meditate, the complexes within us will tend to rise to the surface. And I think most of us have experienced that. And when that happens, we have to be careful not to regress into feelings of shame or guilt for having these stored feelings within us. And here's where I think self-compassion is so important. Learning to accept and comfort all the hurtful and unpleasant feelings that we harbor. In most cases, we didn't create those feelings, so we shouldn't beat ourselves up for having them. Thich Nhat Hanh put it beautifully when he said that the importance of learning to see those early hurts that build into anger, anxiety, and depression, to see them as our inner children who need our love and compassion. Unfortunately, we often tend to feel ashamed of our own wounded inner child. But if you saw a two-year-old child on the street terrified because they lost sight of their mother, how would you respond? You wouldn't be angry, you wouldn't be upset at the child. You would want to give them a hug. You'd want to comfort them. And that is exactly what we need to learn how to do with the inner child or the wounded part of the inner child that we each have within us. Another part of self-awareness that I think can be helpful in learning to understand is learning to understand how we process things. Neurologically, we are all unique. Some people process things rapidly, while others need more time to process what they're feeling or even to be sure of what they're feeling at a given moment. Knowing where you are on that spectrum can be very helpful. I see this a lot in couples that I work with in marriage counseling. If one is a rapid processor and the other a bit slower, it can lead to all kinds of misunderstandings. The one who is the rapid processor can easily get impatient and frustrated with their partner who doesn't respond immediately with emotion while the slower processor will often feel that their partner responds too quickly and impulsively with emotion without thinking things through. And I think, of course, there's 
a bit of truth to both of those perceptions. Whether one is a fast or a slow processor, which is totally a question of genetic neurological makeup, both types benefit from not trying to respond too quickly with emotion, especially when feeling hurt or angry. For the fast processor, I think it's a question of not trusting that initial response, which may be affected by a storehouse of previous hurts or wounds and may come out more strongly than is appropriate or helpful. For the slow processor, it's a question of being aware that because you do process things slowly, you need to give yourself a bit of time to think about what has just happened or even to realize what you're feeling before responding. We all know the old saying, count to 10 before expressing your anger. Or as Buddhists were taught, take three deep breaths before responding. Just giving yourself that extra few seconds can help us to moderate the initial feeling from being an explosive or explosive outburst to being a more appropriate and thoughtful response. Of course, anger is just one of many feelings that we experience when our minds are troubled as they are for many of us during this time of worldwide crisis. We may have moments of feeling grief, sadness, fear, resentment, so many different things and sometimes perhaps all at once. I think our best tool for dealing with all these feelings is self-awareness and the compassion that that engenders. Another aspect of self-awareness I think can help us to be the masters rather than slaves of our feelings is being aware of where our feelings reside. Our tendency is to think that feelings reside in the brain, in the mind. And certainly the brain is the organ that receives and processes feelings. That's not where they're usually stored or even where they always originate. We tend to store our feelings in our bodies. This is something the ancients knew long before modern medicine or psychology existed. In ancient Hebrew literature, you read such statements as, my kidneys weep with grief, my intestines groan with anger, or my liver seethes with jealousy. I think these are more than just symbolic illusions. And I think we all know this intuitively to some extent. For example, we know that when we get anxious, we tend to feel it in our chest or stomach. Or when we get angry, our jaws tighten or we clench our fists. These are automatic physical reactions. As psychology has learned more how to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder in the last 30 years or so, Many of the treatment modalities that have emerged focus on dealing with the re-experiencing of early trauma in the body where it is stored. So I think one very helpful way of dealing with our feelings, and particularly those that are painful or disturbing, is by being more aware of our bodies, where we feel pain, where we hold tension. What I find to be a helpful exercise as part of the meditation practice, on occasion at least, is to take a body scan of ourselves. With our eyes closed, focusing one by one on each part of our body from head to toe, sensing where there is tension or discomfort, and consciously trying to breathe energy and relaxation into those areas. So these are a few of the things that we can do, I think, to increase our self-awareness in recognizing and moderating our feelings, especially when our minds feel troubled. But if there's one thing I really want to emphasize this morning, 
is that in these troubled times that we're going through right now, it is normal that our minds should feel troubled. It is normal to be afraid of catching the coronavirus. As Governor Cuomo has said on numerous occasions, you should be afraid. If you're not, you're not being mindful. It's normal to feel anger at those who are not giving us adequate leadership. It's normal to feel frustrated from cabin fever, having been largely confined to our apartments for the past 18 weeks. We should not be critical of ourselves for having these feelings. And we should realize that while our spiritual practice and cultivation of self-awareness can help us to accept and moderate the feelings that trouble our minds, we cannot expect them to eliminate those feelings, only to better cope with them. I'm afraid that this crisis that the whole world is going through is far from over. I think we see it in the news every day. The CDC is predicting that the so-called first wave of COVID-19 will not be finished until well into 2021. That's not a pleasant reality. It's a, it's a daunting reality. But as daunting as that may be, and of course, no one really knows when this is going to be over. But one thing we can be sure of is it will end. As Dwayne often says so wisely, this too shall pass, and perhaps more quickly than we fear. Meanwhile, I think it's so important for us to give adequate attention to self-care through all this. Eating well, exercising, getting enough sleep, keeping a schedule that makes sense, being disciplined in our spiritual practice. And you know, part of self-care, I think, is also indulging a bit in things that give us pleasure. We should let ourselves occasionally have that extra dish of ice cream or that extra piece of cake. We shouldn't feel guilty when we occasionally binge on Netflix, Amazon Prime, or Hulu. We need those pleasures too. And of course, we should continue to keep in close contact with family and friends, which is comforting, I think, for all of us. In these times, I think we need to accept and embrace all that we are feeling with compassion and not self-criticism. It's difficult in these times not to give in to pessimism, cynicism, or sometimes despair. But as bad as the last few months have been, there have been some real signs of hope. As a society, I think we've become more aware of the evils of racism and neglect of the planet, among other things, than perhaps we've ever been. I think we will see the fruits of this awareness in the elections in November, I really do. And when COVID has finished its destructive work, we will have the opportunity to start anew, to rebuild this city, rebuild society, rebuild a world where there is better justice, equality, compassion, empathy. Our troubled minds in this troubled time can become transformative minds that construct a better future. I really believe this. We can make it happen. That is my hope. Thank you for letting me share my thoughts with you this morning.